Old Sturbridge Village, like Colonial Williamsburg to the south, is now historic in its own right. Founded in 1946, the 72-year-old museum has told the story of the early federal period for nearly five decades, and like any institution of its size and scope, it's working hard to adapt to a new reality for museums. Fortunately, CEO James Donahue is focused on making the site relevant for a new generation. Sit back as we head back to the 1830s to learn how this old site is coming up with new ideas on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast! This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today we are joined by James Donahue, the CEO of Old Sturbridge Village. Jim graduated from Colby College in Maine with a degree in economics, but ended up taking a banking job. During his tenure at that bank, he became involved with Junior Achievement, a national nonprofit program that connects business people with children in the classroom. He spent Monday nights teaching business basics to kids in Newport, Rhode Island. His first paying teaching job was an inner city school in Providence. He soon moved into education administration and was recruited to lead the first charter school in the state of Rhode Island. The school, called the Highlander, was launched in 2000 and grew to 300 students during the six years that he was at the helm. Donahue has led Old Sturbridge Village since 2006 and has overseen a renaissance for the 72-year-old museum and nonprofit organization. And we are so pleased to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Thank you, Nick, for having me. I'm excited to be here. So it's interesting. We interview a lot of different people from a lot of different diverse backgrounds. I don't think I've interviewed anyone who went from charter school to running a large museum nonprofit. What was the what was the decision? What was the path there? And then what, how did you get linked up with this? And what made you decide to kind of make that jump? Oh, uh, goodness. So um, I was running the charter school that I had founded in Providence, Rhode Island, and in the fall of 2006, got a phone call from the woman who was the search consultant helping the village find its next president. And she knew me from Providence, and she suggested that I take a look at the, at the position. And I remember saying to her clearly what you just said, right, which is I have no museum experience at all. I'm not a historian. I'm, I'm not a curator. I'm not sure I'd be right for this job. And she said, you know, I really think you should just come up and, and talk to them. And if, if you aren't interested, we don't have to go any further, but I, I don't think they're looking for a museum expert. I think they're looking for somebody who can help them build capacity. So I came up, it was a fall day just before Halloween. And I spent the day walking around the museum with a then director who later became a vice president uh, in my administration. And we spent a few hours together uh, and, and while we were walking around the museum, he was pointing out all the things that they were trying to fix, right? There had been a huge decline in attendance. There had been significant annual operating deficits, massive layoffs of costumed historians. And as he was telling the story um, and I was walking around, it just became clear that, you know, this was a beloved New England institution, if not American institution. And it was really on the verge of, of collapsing. And he said something to me at the end of the visit that stuck with me on the ride home, which was, if it closes, it, it'll never come back again. And so when I was driving back to Providence, I thought to myself, you know, 
that can't happen if if there's anything that I can do to prevent that from happening and, and turn the course. It's something I should do. So I called the search consultant and put my hat formally in the ring. And a few months later, here here I am, <laughs> a few months after that. So, so yeah, it was very different for me. And I, I remember uh, speaking to the governor of Rhode Island when I was leaving, and, and he said to me, you know, this is a crazy decision. Why would you leave a successful career in urban education and go to a place that's probably going to be closed in a year? And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to, we're not going to be closed in a year. So was it really that dire that it could have, I mean, you were taking over something that was in pretty rough shape? Yeah, I mean, we had, you know, and to the, to the board's credit, uh, there was full disclosure during the interview process. I mean, it was a very rigorous selection process, Nick. I mean, they were very transparent with what had been happening financially. And if things didn't turn around, I think we had about a year worth of, uh, life, a year's worth of life on the, uh, if, if things didn't change. So it was a pretty dire circumstance. And then soon after I arrived full time in 2007, uh, you know, the recession of 2008 hit and that kind of accelerated the need for us to make sure that the museum was stable financially. So, yeah, before we get to that story about how the stability came and, and what you've been working on since, Maybe just give us the thumbnail sketch, the the minute version of what is Old Sturbridge Village. When did it get started? The size of the operation, the kind of story that you tell, the attendance, that kind of thing. Sure. So the museum opened in 1946. So we are approaching in a few years our 75th anniversary of operation. Uh, it was founded by three brothers who owned and operated the American Optical company, which is an eyeglass manufacturer in the neighboring town of Southbridge, Massachusetts. They were probably one of the largest employers, if not the largest employer in this region during the early part of the 20th century. Uh, They became collectors of early New England furniture and housewares, paintings, portraits, and collected enough of these objects that they decided they needed a uh, place to store them and eventually display them to the public. And that's how the village came to be in a, in a snapshot. And if you fast forward to where we are now, we serve uh, anywhere between, you know, 230 and 270,000 visitors a year. Uh, a lot of that is driven by weather. Uh, about a quarter of those visitors, 20 to 25% are students coming as part of a field trip. Uh, we employ a little over 125 full-time year-round employees, and when we're in high season, which is May through October, we could be north of 200. And we basically interpret early rural New England as it would have been lived in the 1830s. And so we are a um, constructed village. Uh, most of the buildings that are here were relocated from other places in New England, not just Massachusetts, but other states as well. And we have about fifty to 60,000 items in our collection, antiques from the period, ranging from, again, portraits to furniture to Native American bowls to mousetraps, um, things that you would find in, in a typical rural New England house. So it's a big operation for people who haven't visited there before. I mean, it's kind of, I don't know if you uh, would appreciate this, but it's sort of the Williamsburg of the North, in a sense. Um, and it uh, obviously, as you were describing, had sort of fallen on some difficult times. And you kind of gave a paint us a picture of what shape the organization was in when you took over. 
what were some of the first things that you did to try and address that? I mean, what, what, how do you, how do you tackle sort of the day to day while also recognizing you don't have a lot of time to, to do it all? Sure. So, uh, you know, I think, I think your comparison to Colonial Williamsburg is a really good one uh, on a smaller scale, right? So the museum had in its heyday operated a hotel division. It had a fairly large restaurant and banquet division. It had a state-of-the-art museum education center that was built in the 1970s and was really considered a flagship for museum education. Uh, and it had a pretty vibrant costume and interpretation program. And when I got here, the hotel had been closed, the restaurant and um, banquet facility had been closed, even that iconic museum education building had been closed. I remember walking around in one of my interviews and staff people were saying that they were basically making you know, cold cut sandwiches for the visitor and wrapping them in saran wrap so that they, the visitor could have something to eat because the restaurant had been shut down. So it, it, was, it was very much in contraction mode. Um, that's probably the best way to talk about it, Nick. So when I came in, um, I set about immediately to focus on two things, right? One was reversing the gate decline, which had just been voluminous. I mean, we were down to like 220,000 visitors when I arrived in 2006, which was the lowest annual visitation the museum had seen. And to put that in perspective, Around the bicentennial 1976, the museum was seeing north of 600,000 visitors a year. So we were, we had declined significantly. So I was focusing on how do I get people in here? And then also focusing on when they get here, how do I ensure that their visitor experience is a good one and they want to come back and they talk to other people about the experience. So we reopened the restaurant and banquet division so that they could have decent food when they were here. We put more people in costume out into the museum uh, because we felt that was the distinguishing experience of Old Sturbridge Village. And we wanted to make sure that we could deliver on the promise that people expected. We reopened the Museum Education Center so when students and field trips could come here, they could come into a high quality space and not be experiencing museum education programs in a makeshift, <laughs> you know, not, not formal education space. So I basically started to open what had been closed and then try to market effectively to drive customers into those businesses as they opened up. So how do you do that, though, when you're running out of cash? Like, that seems like it's always the challenge in the nonprofit <laughs> world, right? Where it's like, well, we have all these great ideas. We know if we build it and create the great experience, people will come to it. But if you don't have the cash to do it. So did you get startup or sort of like angel foundations to say, we'll give you some, some cash to kind of fuel this? Or how does that work? So we had, around the time of my hire, uh, an anonymous donor uh, made a gift to the village of a million dollars as a challenge grant if we were able to raise a million dollars in new money. And so that challenge gift, and I'll never forget this because it was instrumental in my early success, and I tell this donor that all the time, uh, that without that gift, the, the, my first 12 to 24 months on this job would have been much more difficult uh, because the challenge gift not only was a vote of confidence that a donor had in a new future for the village, but because it was a challenge grant, it, it was leveraged to raise a second million dollars and we had two years to do it basically. And so 
that gave me the cash infusion to make some investments where we felt they would have the quickest and highest return. And then I leveraged this to the challenge grant to open doors to donors that had been closed previously uh, because of some you know, mistakes that the museum had made or had never been opened us to begin with. So uh, that proved to be an important part of the first, I would say, 12 to 18 months that I was here. So where do things stand now? I mean, I know we're jumping forward and probably missing a lot of the headaches and making it sound easy, but where does it, where do, what is the, what does the village look like now? Do you have more than a year to go? Uh, you know, can you stay alive for, for longer than a year? What's it, what's it all look like now? Oh, <laughs> uh, goodness. I, I hope so. Um, so it, it's a very different place, although for me, because I've, I've been here all this time, it, 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 I, I, I notice it less probably than anyone else, but We've reopened all the divisions that were closed. So the hotel has been renovated and is reopened and operating now. Uh, we have a huge, vibrant wedding business at the banquet division. Uh, the museum education is doing really, really well. We've got that center up and running and they're introducing new programs. And then we've complemented those things that we had been doing back when the village was in its quote heyday of the late 70s with some new programs that we think are complementary to the mission and create synergies that are just good for the overall museum. So you, we, you and I talked earlier about the new charter school that we opened in September of 2017. It's in its second year now. We have 200 students on campus every day, grades kindergarten through grade four. So how does that work? Did I mean, I guess that's obviously you played to your strength there because you'd done that before. Is there an example of another museum in the country that has one? Are you guys the first? Uh, we are not the first. Um, the Henry Ford in Dearborn, Michigan has a charter school that I believe is grades 7 through 12. Okay. And I think that there are other charter schools that are located near a museum or on the campus of a museum. The difference with Old Sturbridge Academy is that we actually manage the charter school and the village is an important part of the school design. So the charter probably wouldn't exist without the village because of the amount of time that the students spend inside the museum mm -hmm. and the kind of programming that happens for them in concert with the museum. But what I love about the charter school, and I could talk for days about it, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually exceeding our expectations on every front. But one of the reasons why I felt it was important, not just for Old Sturbridge Village, but for the community is that the town next door to us, uh, where the founding family operated their business, is a town called Southbridge. And Southbridge is a high poverty town. It's an old mill town here in central Massachusetts. And the public school system a few years ago was put into receivership by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts because it was the lowest performing public school system in the entire state. Uh, so what the charter school has done is not just created a great research and development lab for Old Sturbridge Village to pilot and experiment with new museum education programs, but it's also allowed us to bring students from the lowest performing school district in Massachusetts here every day and hopefully save their academic lives. So most of the students at the charter school come from the town of Southbridge. Um, all of the charter school families uh, receive memberships to the museum, which I love because it's diversifying 
our constituency. I'll be here on the weekends and I'll be walking around the village and I'll see charter school students who are here with their parents, you know, and showing them things that are happening in the museum. The kids are working in the museum. So when visitors are here, uh, especially in the fall and the spring, we'll see the students working in a garden, doing a craft, uh, even working with the animals. Uh, from a from a mission perspective, it's been great. And then from a practical perspective, it just draws revenue for the village because we manage all of their accounting functions, their IT, their HR. So it's been good for the the museum as well. Yeah, and I mean, it also is creating a whole new constituency in the long term, right? I mean, eventually these kids will grow up and then it's almost like they've, you know, you're their alma mater. You know, I mean, that's how universities raise money is sort of on this idea of, well, you came from here and we helped you become the person that you are today. And most museums don't have that, but you will have now sort of graduates, which is pretty interesting. Um, from a, just curious, you know, there's museum professionals listening all around the country. If someone were interested in going this route, how difficult is it? I mean, it sounds next to impossible to create your own charter school, but is it something that's worth exploring for other folks who might be interested in this? So I definitely think so, Nick. I mean, I, I would absolutely encourage museums, not just in the living history space, but in other spaces as well to, to think about it. I mean, it is it is not easy. Uh, it did take a few years for us to do it. I'm actually presenting at a conference next week about it. And in preparing for that, I was thinking, gee, when did I first introduce this idea as a possibility? And I think it was 2010, you know, and we opened the school in the fall of 2017. So it was a long process of, you know, socializing the concept, developing the vision, getting everybody on board. But I think it's made a huge difference here. I mean, the kids, our staff know them in a way that's different from the typical field trip student. You're right. You're absolutely right. It's building a constituency. I mean, I had a second grader last year who's really been struggling with uh, learning to read and write, you know, came to us really unprepared and was out with him in the village one day in the spring. And he came up to me and said, Mr. Donahue, you know, I I really want to work with the animals. Can I come back here and work with the animals when I'm a grown up? And I'm like, of course, you know, we can, but I said, in the meantime, we got to get you to read. So we're, we're bringing him books about animals so that he has an interest in learning to read so that he can be here, um, you know, when he's older, either in high school or college. And so I just see tremendous opportunities for us. Um, yeah. And I think it's a big, big lesson for the rest of the preservation and, and history community to, to think more seriously about this and, and to look at examples like Sturbridge. So in terms of what's next, I mean, you've, you've, you've been there for, I guess it's 12 years now. You've made some really big changes. It's obviously more relevant. It clearly uh, is more sustainable. Things seem to be heading in a good direction. What's the vision? Where, where's the organization headed? Any other big projects that you have planned? So, you know, I, I think that, in the back of my mind always is the preservation of interpretive history. And, you know, we are doubling down really here on the living history component. Mm -hmm. And that requires having a well-trained, high quality, um, decently compensated staff and a pipeline of people who can learn not just the discipline, the content of history, but also the hand skills that are associated with 
interpreting here at the village, um, the teaching skills that are needed. So I think when I think of what's next, you know, a lot of the things that we do here, the hotel, the banquet division, um, even our theatrical division that, that opened a few years ago and does immersive theater here at night, those are all designed to drive revenue, right, to protect the core of the institution, which is the interpretation. And so I think what's next for us is probably a plan to ensure that 10 years from now, we have as vibrant, as qualified, as talented, as rigorous, as diverse a staff of interpretive costume historians as we do now, and if not, if not more so. So I need to develop a plan for the next generation and make sure that you know, right now we have terrific blacksmiths. You know, I just need to make sure 10 years from now we have terrific blacksmiths. Um, so that's really where we're focused now. So we're doing things like creating and expanding internship programs. We introduced this year with the uh, generous support of a donor from Virginia, actually, a fellowship program in the historic trades. So we have four fellows who are here for the year. They're living here on campus and they're working with a master potter or a master tinsmith uh, and they're spending the year learning the trade and at some point they may land here uh, or maybe they'll land somewhere else but we're trying to invest in the hand skills for the future so just a few little projects on the horizon it sounds like you know just just saving the future of uh, historic interpretation well, and, and I also think <laughs> the, the history itself too no I mean, I mean right no I'm, I'm yeah I mean it's just it's exciting but, you know yeah, and I and I and I really think what you know to some extent what the school has done is it's raised the bar for all of us here around, hey, what do what do we really want to aspire to be? And I think one of the challenges that we face as a country, and we've probably never faced it in the way that we're facing it now, is what have we lost by moving away from the real teaching of American history in our public schools? What have we lost from sacrificing the instruction of civics? and civics education programs to double down on, you know, skill and drill in reading, writing, and math. And I think that the village is in a position now to help steer the country back to a place where those things are important, you know, and, and I, I see it in our own students at the charter school. I'm hoping that we'll be able to disseminate some curricular programs in the next couple of years to other schools in the area that get at this stuff. Um, I mean, our students run a weekly town meeting, much like you would have seen in the 1830s, uh, where they are making decisions, talking about what's happening in their community, sharing what's going well, and they run it themselves. I just think it's, I think we're at a great point, and I think museums are at a great point, right? This is a critical juncture, and, and if we take the leap, you know, we can do great things for the country, so. Well, it's, it's exciting to hear that kind of optimism because I think it's easy to live in the nonprofit world and focus on the bad or the challenges. Um, but obviously, and, and I think something you said is important too in that the experience of one big success like your charter school has given everyone that opportunity within the organization to kind of feel it's like okay to dream big, um, which I think a lot of times, you know, people can be pretty narrow or, or almost pessimistic in their approach to what's possible. So that's exciting. And I give our board a lot of credit for that too. I mean, they, they um, have always been in the 12 years that I've been here, 
Uh, and, and certainly we've had trustees who have graduated and new trustees who have come on board. But you know, they've always been very supportive of the institution taking what, what one funder said to me one day was, were big, bold steps. You know, and sometimes those bold steps work beautifully, as in the case of the charter school. Um, and sometimes those steps are a little shaky at first and, and, and solidify later. But I, I think one key to this for us has been we have a terrific board. And I think if we didn't have a board that was supportive of those kinds of things, it, we, would, we would not be where we are right now, for sure. So before we let you go, this has been a fantastic interview. What is your favorite historic site or place? So this is this is a really hard question for me. So this is going to sound unexpected, I think. But my favorite historic site was actually the Colosseum in Rome. Okay. And I just had this moment. I was there this past summer, and I was standing there, and it, the gravity, right, of what was happening there and the history of it, and just standing there, uh, just really moved me. And uh, I would say that's probably my favorite historic site. Um, I could be convinced about Old Sturbridge Village, which is my, <laughs> definitely up there, uh, close to it. But I just think when I, th- when I think of being in a space where I just almost was speechless, uh, it would have to be the Coliseum. Well, that is a fantastic uh, way to wrap this. Our first Coliseum answer uh, on PreserveCast, <laughs> but we'll take it and, and hard to argue it. Um, Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. It's fantastic to watch from afar all the good work that you're doing at Sturbridge. I hope more people pay attention to it uh, and that you guys get the credit for everything that you're doing up there and look forward to talking with you again in the future. Well, Nick, thank you for this opportunity and congratulations on all you are doing and uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.